Good morning. So I'll apologize in advance. I've been fighting a cold all week, and my voice is about 60%. So I'll give you that 60, but the rest I can't do anything about. I hope you've had a wonderful Christmas celebration with your family, and I wish you a happy new year this evening. How many of you were able to get away for the holidays? Show of hands. Okay, a few of you got away. So I started thinking about taking a road trip on holiday season. And today is a family worship today. So we, we've got some kids in the audience. Can I see kids' hands so I know where you guys are? Raise them nice and high. All right, there, there's a few of you. Most in the balcony. That's going to be tough. All right, we're going we're gonna to do our best here. But I need your help. All right, kids? So throughout the sermon, I'm going to ask for your help. And if you agree to help me, I've got a little prize for you. I have with me Pastor Dave's favorite candy, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. So if you can help me throughout the sermon, I will give you a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Fair? Now, I just found out this morning after the first service that Pastor Bob's favorite is Kit Kat. I was this close to getting Kit Kats, but maybe next time. For this time... I've got some uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. So first off, kids, if you're preparing or your parents are preparing to go on a long trip, what do you need to do to get ready? Yes, in the pink. You need to pack? That's a great answer. All right, I'm going to try and toss this. <laughs> you ready? All right, here goes. All right, who else? Who else can help me out? What else do you do? That's fantastic. You've seen Home Alone, haven't you? <laughs> One more? Yes, in the back. Pack for yourself. All right, one more time here. <laughs> you ready? All right, great job. So here's some of the things that I came up with. You've, you've got to pack a suitcase. You've got to put it in the car. You've got to gas up the car, grab your tickets or reservations, and lock up, right? Some of the things that we normally do when we're going on a trip. But then we've got to plan that trip and how we get there. Now, for many of us nowadays, that's an app on our phone. Maybe you're more traditional, and you actually break out the roadmap and plan your trip. But one of the most important things about long trips are the road signs. How do we know where to go? The road sign points the way. And today we're going to talk about three road signs. Now this passage is rather lengthy. We're going from chapter 3, all of chapter 3, and into chapter 4. This is that transition piece where we see ministry go from John the Baptist, where he's preparing the way, through Jesus' baptism, and then into his temptation before he launches into a ministry of power under the Holy Spirit. And in that passage, we're going to find these three road signs. So if you will, let's bow for a moment of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Dear Father... 
thank you for your word. I thank you for this wonderful year. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through these words, through your passage, and touch our hearts. Open our ears. Allow us to hear through your Holy Spirit. And pray that you'd apply this to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So three movements that we're going to look at. The voice of one crying, the arrival of one coming, and the spirit of one committed. Let's start by looking at the voice of one crying. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, all of this is about the mantle of the prophet. It's being transferred to John here. And this formula of timing and source occurs throughout scripture. So I want to show you a couple of examples. We're not going to read them all, but I want to just take a look at them. First, I want to show you Elijah from 1 Kings. And once again, in the blue, you see the timing. And in that case, it's the third year of Ahab, the, the drought during Ahab's reign. And then you see the source. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. And this formula repeats over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. So below that is Isaiah. And then we find it in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Over and over again. In fact, that phrase, the word of the Lord came, is in Jeremiah 24 times and Ezekiel 50 times. It is the formula for God speaking his prophetic word through his prophet. And it's not just the major prophets. You also see it in some of the minor prophets. Here's two from Haggai and Zechariah, and they're not the only ones. These are just a handful of examples of it occurring throughout the Old Testament. And the, the point of this is that we are to see John in that light. Luke is telling us, look, John is one of those guys He's an Isaiah. He's an Ezekiel. And what he says is the very word of God. And that's how we're to take it. So keep that in mind as we walk through this passage. The second, I want to talk about the purpose of the prophet. And that brings us to verse 3 in chapter 3 of Luke. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John's purpose, stated purpose, is to prepare the way for the Lord in his first coming. And how does he do that? By making level and straight paths. Now, once again, kids, I'm going to need your help. I've got a, a tub of sand up here, 
and I'd like a volunteer to come up and show us how to make level pads. Do I have a volunteer? Someone. Don't all jump at once. Sure. In the, in the back. Can you come on up front? Yes. Standing up. Thank you. As you come up, I'll, I'm going to make this nice and rough. Because, you know, that's the way that things were when John starts his ministry. So we've got some nice hills, some valleys. My beautiful spackle knife. Perfectly scratched up, ready to go. Don't mess up my spatula knife, okay? I'm going to need to spackle with that. Now, here's what I need you to do. Make a straight and level path from the blue line to the blue line. Can you do that? Keep all the sand in. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much. And this is for you. I want my spackle knife back there. Now, do you see how she did that? She, she bulldozed right across, plowed through all the hills, filled in the valleys. And that's exactly what John does. It is not a gentle process as he's preparing the way and making these level paths. Notice this. Who does he do this with? He preaches this baptism of repentance, inviting people to, to find forgiveness for their sins. So his leveling, his filling is done where? It's on the hearts of people. His work to plow, to bulldoze is in people. And he's transforming people's lives, calling them to repent and find forgiveness. That is the preparation. That is the leveling and straightening. That brings us to the message of the prophet. I want you to see again verses 7 to 9. We'll start just chunk by chunk here. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. See, the first thing he says is that there's no escape. You're trying to run away. You're trying to avoid God's wrath for your sin. But there is no escape from that. So he calls them a brood of vipers. Kids, that's what a brood of vipers looks like. If your brother calls you a viper, it's not nice. Okay? They're making fun of you. And really what's going on is they're trying to get out of something by saying that they're there for repentance. And that brings us to the second point here. There, there's no excuse. He says this in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What they were saying is, but we're good Jewish boys. We're good Jewish girls. Now, kids, how many of you, be honest, how many of you, pretended to be asleep on Christmas Eve, but were too excited. No one's being honest. I was too excited. The whole thing here is about they're pretending. They're making believe that they're repenting, but it's not real. 
And God is calling them to true repentance. John the Baptist is saying, this is not enough. Being a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish girl is not what it's about. He's calling them to a real relationship with God. He calls, he, he calls them out and says repentance really shows in fruit. And then lastly, he says there is no delay. Take a look at verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If the axe is already at the root, it's as good as gone. The axe is swinging. The tree is coming down. And it will be gone for good. The whole tree. And really what John is calling them to in all of this is to bear fruit that matches their repentance. In other words, change your behavior. If you're really repenting, you won't keep doing what you've been doing. Repentance is admitting sin and changing, right? Amen. Amen. And there ought to be that change in behavior. So in verses 10 to 14, he talks about that change. Let's take a look at it. And the crowds say to him, or sorry, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to them, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and, what, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Basically, what he tells them is, look, I want you to give instead of take. You've been taking from everyone around you. Repent, and now give back. Give to others. Be generous. This whole ministry of John is to prepare the way for Christ. And we too have been given a similar ministry. In 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been called to be ambassadors. It says there, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we have a similar message. We've been called to invite people to be reconciled with God, to find peace with him, forgiveness in Christ. Not as prophets, but as ambassadors, building bridges to other people inviting them to become right with God by repenting of their sin. And in so doing, we can become that road sign to Jesus Christ, pointing people 
to the one who can save them. We've got an opportunity Noah just talked about, January 12th, to invite people out and have them hear the gospel. We can be that road sign. And that brings us to our second movement in the passage, and that is the arrival of one coming. Let's take a look at the identity of Christ in verses 15 and 16. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So a lot of people were seeing John, hearing him speak and say, this guy preaches with power. Is this maybe Messiah? Is this the one we're to expect? And John sets the record straight. He says, well, first of all, there's a question of power. I'm a normal guy. But Jesus, the, the one coming, is mightier than I. He's far more powerful. Secondly, there's this question of worth. And John says, I'm unworthy. I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoes. Even service to the one coming is a privilege. And that's a statement about worship, is it not? John is saying that the one to come is so much greater than us. He is worthy of our worship and our service, though we are unworthy to give it. That's what he's saying. He is so much above us, so much more glory, gloriful, if that's a word. And there's also a question about baptism. John says, look, I just use water. But this guy, this one coming, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's exactly what happens on the day of Pentecost. Right? When the Holy Spirit comes down for the first time, the visible sign are tons of fire. That is what God does for us today. And that brings us to the baptism of Christ. Where Jesus reveals his identity as the one coming. So take a look with me in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, why does Jesus participate in baptism? We just saw one. So this is an easy question, kids. Can someone tell me what baptism is about? Yes. Yeah, to show a sign you're a Christian. Great job. Thank you. And for everyone, what are we baptized in? We just saw it. Water. Just regular old water. Right? Now, if being baptized is a symbol of us becoming a Christian, did Jesus need to get baptized? How can Jesus become a Christian? He's the founder. 
Did Jesus need to repent of his sins? No, he has no sins to repent of. So why? Why is he being baptized? Well, I think a huge part of it is to relate to us, to show us that he's one of us, that he's not just God Almighty, but he's human. And so he's baptized just like we need to be, and he identifies with us as one of us. But notice the voice from heaven. What does God from heaven say? This is my son. With him I am well pleased. Because in Jesus' baptism, we also see his divinity. This is God Almighty. Human. Yet God. In one. And that's super important. He's saying, I'm God that you can relate to. Him being God and man is his source of power, is his reason for worth, and is his fount for baptism. Right? And that brings us to the genealogy, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I do want to read the beginning and end. Notice this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And then the very end, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke is correcting a misconception here. He's saying, you you may have thought of Jesus as Joseph's son, but in reality, he is the son of God. Again, pointing to Jesus' divinity. But let's not forget some of the other names. As you see on your screen, this is a summary. One name that stands out is Zerubbabel. This is the guy that we talked about during the series in Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the guys that helped rebuild Jerusalem. But also there, we see Jesus is in the line of David, Abraham, and Adam. And that's important because Jesus is also the one that fulfilled the divine covenant to each of those men. To David, he is the seed who would sit on David's throne and rule for eternity. To Abraham, he is the seed of Abraham through whom the entire world would be blessed. And to Adam, he is the seed who would crush Satan's head. This is the promised one who would fulfill these promises. He is divine and human. And his baptism and his genealogy both demonstrate that. Why is that important? Because he's one of us, yet without sin. That brings us to Hebrews 5. Sorry, Hebrews 4. 14 and following. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, which we'll see in a moment, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, because he's one of us, he understands what we go through. He can relate to us. He knows the difficulty of going through temptation. He knows the pain that we've suffered. He knows how hard it is. And he invites us to approach him, to draw near, to have a relationship with him. And in so doing, we can be that road sign. So we fall in love with Jesus. We cannot help but other people to see that. And our love for God, our relationship with him, will point people to our Savior and be a road sign for him. And that leads us to our last movement. The spirit of one committed. For this, we turn to chapter 4. Take a look with me in verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, that's an understatement, but we'll get to that in a minute. First, a word about the Spirit. Notice this immediately comes after his baptism. So he's baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then in this passage, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Spirit. That tells me something about what's going on here. It tells me that he's right where he's supposed to be. And what he's going through is right where he's meant what he's meant to go through. This is where God has him. You can't be baptized, filled, and led by the Holy Spirit and not be where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. That means being in the wilderness is where he's supposed to be because he's 40 days in the wilderness, mimics Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And his going without food for 40 days allows him to commune with the Father and build deeply into that relationship. And his temptation by the devil allows him to relate to you and I to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. He's right where God wants him to be, and that's extremely important. Now, a word about those temptations. Let's take a look at them one by one. First, in chapter 4, verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, kids, 40 days without food, 40 days, he's hungry. I want to know, I've got a double Reese's peanut butter cup here, a double. What would you be willing to do? For this. Yes. Kill an animal. Well, don't do that. Uh, did your parents feed you? Did you have food in the last 24 hours? Yes? Yeah. But, but you're still willing to kill an animal for this. Yes? Yeah. Uh, Come get this afterwards. I don't want to chuck this one up there. But come see me afterwards. That's yours. 
So imagine Jesus has gone without food for 40 days. That is the human limit for not eating. He has gone to the extent that the human body can handle. To say he's hungry is an understatement. Right? Now, does Jesus have the ability to turn a stone into bread? Yeah. I mean, he turned water into wine like it was nothing. Right? This is a piece of cake. But notice what Satan says to him. If you are the son of God, why don't you turn this bread or this stone into bread? That he was the son of God has already been established in his genealogy and baptism. That is not in question. So what is this really about? What it's really about is Satan is saying the son of God shouldn't have to suffer. So why not make yourself some bread? You can get out of this in an instant. You can get out of this in an instant. But remember what I said earlier. He's right where God wants him to be. This is not about food at all. It's about whether or not he will trust God in his way and his provisions and his timing. And choose to suffer while he waits on God. Both ways he gets fed. Understand that. Both ways he gets fed. Keep that in mind as we take a look at the number, number two temptation. In uh, chapter 4, verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, what was Satan promising him? Power and authority. By way of reminder, those things are already his. Philippians 2, 9 and following, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's already his. So what is Satan offering? He's offering those things without the cross, without the suffering, without the pain. That's the temptation. And then look at the third. Starting in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, kids, I need your help again. Is someone willing to come on up and jump off the stage for me? Come on up. You raise your hand too? Come on up. You can do it with them. You sure you're up for this? You know, jump off the stage. Great job. Your turn. Don't go anywhere. Okay, now, let me ask you something. Will you guys go up to the roof of the church and jump off of that? 
are you more sane? Would you go up to the roof? At least you're willing to think about it. Well, let's take a look at where Jesus was asked to jump off of. The temple is much higher than this church. That red circle is probably about where Jesus was taken. That's roughly about 120, 130 feet, maybe more. That's not something you survive from. And that's the point. Right? Jesus, uh, Satan has taken Jesus to a point where if he jumped off, it's beyond human ability. Meaning, Satan is saying, Jesus, if you are the son of God, prove it. Force God's hand. Jump off of here and show the world this is who you are. He demands proof. And again, Satan is once again pointing out, look, even these passages say the son of God shouldn't suffer. God will prevent you from striking your heel on the ground. And that's his point. Three times Satan is hammering this home that the Son of God shouldn't have to suffer. The Son of God should be taking it easy, relaxing in his throne, enjoying the glory. But there is no salvation without the cross. Salvation itself is at stake, and thank God that Jesus said no. Because our salvation depended on it. Now let's take a word about the responses, just briefly. Consistently, Jesus refers to God's word every time. And specifically, he refers to Deuteronomy, which is a message that Moses preached to Israel while they're in the desert before entering the promised land. Exactly where Jesus is now. And where Israel failed, Jesus is going to succeed. And that comparison is intentional. He also consistently chooses God's way, even when it means he will suffer. He consistently chooses to trust God for his provision, even if it means that provision will be delayed. God's timing, God's way. And he consistently points back to God. It's all about that relationship. That's the very reason he's out there fasting, to spend time with God. And we've been called to that same kind of commitment. We saw this when we studied Philippians just a few months ago. So in Philippians Chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. If we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in our life, then we must be willing to participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. You cannot follow God and avoid suffering. You cannot follow God and have your own way. Those are mutually exclusive. And what may seem like avoiding suffering leads to such 
pain. Where doing things God's way leads to such blessing. In John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he says this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, meaning the world and Satan, have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We can't do this on our own. We need that Holy Spirit that we've been baptized into. We need his power. This is divine power that's necessary. And just to further that discussion about being his children, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As we live out that commitment to the Lord, empowered by his Holy Spirit, people will see Christ in us. And that commitment is that third road sign through which we can point people to Christ. Now, as I summarize, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. We talked through three movements. The voice of one crying is about John presenting his message, calling people to repent and find the forgiveness of God, preparing the way for Christ's first coming. The arrival of one coming is about Jesus' baptism and genealogy, where we see that he is both fully human and fully God, able to relate to us and inviting us to that kind of relationship. And the spirit of one committed, where we see Jesus face temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit, demonstrating his commitment to the Father, trusting his ways, even when suffering is in view, trusting his provisions, even when there is delay. And those remind us of the three road signs. First is evangelism, spreading the good news, telling people about Jesus, preparing the way for his second coming. We've already talked about the revival coming on January 12th. You can also participate in our evangelism class coming up in February. Learn more about this. Second is relationship, relationship with God. Your love affair with him spills over to your relationships with others, pointing the way to Christ. And lastly, commitment, being sold out for God, living to know him, the power of his resurrection. People can't help but see that, see that kind of commitment and love. Again, pointing the way to Christ. And I hope that you would consider which of these God is calling you to drive a stake in the, stand, in the sand and put up a road sign. Will you pray? Dear Father, thank you for your word and for what it teaches us. I pray that you would impress upon us your word. Help us to know what you want us to do, which road sign you want us to erect in our life. As we enter this new year, may we point people to Christ and prepare the way for your second coming, which we hope is soon. We pray this in Jesus' name.